Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Thursday afternoon, I was in the grocery store and ran into one of our regulars who's here quite often, and we were talking about the chapel, and uh, he said, I got a request for Sunday. Why don't you preach from Romans? So I was like, okay. So uh, that's what I'm going to do this morning. We could have taken favorite hymns this morning. Um, It dawned on me last week that when the crowd's this size, the offering takes about 30 seconds to take. And so I was up way early last week, uh, but I had to use my hourglass um, because I forgot my watch. Actually, I didn't. That was an illustration. But I promise you, if you're getting a little nervous, I'll get you out a little early this morning. How about that? The message this morning I've entitled, Judge This. And it really comes from Paul teaching in the 14th chapter of Romans, ends the section right before what we're going to address this morning, really talking about this. He's simply saying, hey, how about you watching out for yourself? You're going to have to give an account to God for yourself, not for somebody else. So in the words of Jesus, when he was teaching the parable about, you know, don't look at the speck that's in somebody else's eye when you've got a log in your own eye. Look out for your own interests. Look out for what God is teaching you. And it really is about the church. So this morning, with this group of people, I recognize a lot of home folks, a lot of folks from this area that you're involved in other churches. You come here regularly. Many of you do. So I want to talk to you really just on a practical sense about the church this morning. One of the things I thought about even as I was praying for churches up and down the East Coast is the church is not a building. This is not the church. In the Old Testament, there was this sense that God dwelt in the tabernacle. In fact, God would send a cloud to kind of hover over the tabernacle to let them know, this is where my presence is. But that's no longer the case. God now dwells within us. When Garden City Baptist burned a couple of years ago, one of the conversations I had with the pastor, we both agreed, the church did not burn. The church building burned. And for many months, that church group of people met here. And so this became, for a a few months, this is where Garden City Baptists met. They met at Garden City Chapel for a while. And even churches now up and down the East Coast may have to meet at a school auditorium or maybe in a tent for a while. But that's where the church is. It's not the building that may have been destroyed. It's not the church. That's just the church building. So Paul's writing to a group of Christians in Rome, and apparently some of the things he's having to address in in this passage were going on. So I want us to look at historically what Paul writes to, but then apply it to us. And the first one is, let love be your guide. Unity in the church is so important for one reason. Now, number one, Jesus said, they'll know you're my followers by your love for one another. It's important because the world is watching. Do you know that some people will make their mind up on the claims of Christ based on how his children live their life? And in fact, how we treat one another. So Paul says, let Love be your guide. Unity is important. One of my favorite preachers growing up was a guy named Vance Havner, and perhaps you've heard of him, evangelist, preached all over. Vance Havner said Christians are like snowflakes or frail, but when they stick together, they can stop traffic. Well, that's true. That's what the church, that's the neat thing about a body of believers that join together to worship together, to honor God together, and to carry out the Great Commission together. It's a strong force. It's strong when they're unified. It's weak when they're fractured. So let's look at this first part of the passage. Let me read verses 14 and following. Excuse me, verses 13 and following. Therefore, 
I don't know if you've noticed how many sermons this, this summer have started off with the word therefore. It's based on what Paul's just said. Now he's going to make a very practical application. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him whom Christ, for whom Christ has died. So we start off with this, therefore, accordingly, based on what Paul's just taught, stop judging one another. The word that Paul uses there is the Greek word that means to decide or even to condemn or to sentence. Paul has said, quit looking at other people and deciding their relationship with God. Focus more on yourself. In fact, he says, rather, determine this. In fact, the same words used there. Paul says, don't judge others, but judge on this basis. Don't put an obstacle or a stumbling block in front of a fellow believer. Now, Paul uses the term strong and weak in this passage, and, and scholars differ on that. I think one explanation of what he's talking about, strong may be somebody who had a stronger, longer relationship with Jesus Christ. They had been Christians longer than others. We're talking about the first century here. Some of the people he's talking to had had a relationship with God for years, generations, because they were from the Jewish faith. Now they've converted and come to Christ, and they've carried some of that teaching and even some misunderstandings now about the Messiah into this new relationship with Jesus. So Paul contrasts. Some of you are stronger in the faith. Some of you are weaker in the faith. And yet the two of you need to get along. Stop judging one another. Obviously, the tense of what he's saying is this was happening. He was saying in the church, in Rome, right now, one of the things that's dividing the church is that you're judging one another. So instead of judging each other, make this your judgment. Make this the sentence. Make this the decision that you make that you won't put, first of all, an obstacle. An obstacle. Literally something to trip somebody up. A stub. It's what you, you know, men walking through the house in the middle of the night when you don't flip the light switch on. That Mr. Potato Head becomes an obstacle, okay? If you've ever jumped up and down holding your foot because you just cracked your little toe on something, that's an obstacle. And Paul says, quit, quit intentionally putting those things in other people's way. Then he uses the word stumbling block which is literally a trap stick. If you were ever a kid or if you've ever watched the Waltons, perhaps you've seen where they take a sapling and bend it over and tie a rope on the end of it, and they have a little snare there that when the rabbit comes along, the, the trap is released and the rabbit is caught. And Paul says, stop putting those in each other's way. And so the, the natural question that comes out of that is, why would you do that? Why would you, what would motivate a stronger believer from putting something that's going to stub some Christian's toe or catch them in some kind of snare. What is it that would motivate somebody to, to play gotcha with weaker believers so that they can put something out there, a test or something, that when somebody comes along and falls into it, they can say, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Listen, God hasn't left any of us here to be the Holy Spirit. Okay? Have you ever met people like that? that they are real good at pointing out your faults. Okay? Don't punch anybody in the side right now. But, you know, th these are people far, far away. None here in this place this morning. But in far, far away, we've all met those kind of people that think it's their, their goal and mission in life is to kind of help God. And Paul says, listen, stop judging one another and stop causing other people to trip up. In fact, 
set an example that others can follow. I think one of the questions we need to ask regularly is, God, is the example that I'm leaving behind for people to follow, is it helping people get closer to Christ or further away? Let me tell you what was happening in the first century. This was actually occurred on a fairly regular basis. Two believers could be invited over to a non-believer's house to eat dinner. One was a strong believer, walking faithfully with Christ. Another may be a new believer that came into his relationship with Christ with a lot of preconceived ideas about eating certain things. And so you go in, and the host would serve the meal and would say something like, oh, by the way, this meat, I got it from the market. It was used uh, in sacrifice to an idol or to another god. Well, the, the weaker brother would just absolutely, I cannot touch this food. The stronger one that had a relationship with Christ and had read the book of Acts or knew of Acts where God had said, there's nothing any longer unclean. You remember the story we preached through Acts last summer? Peter had this vision from God where God brought down all these animals that Peter as a Jew would know, those are unclean, I can't touch those. And God says, no, don't declare anything unclean that I've declared clean. And the bigger picture for Peter was not just that he could eat shrimp now, but it was that he was not to even look at people as being unclean. And, and Peter, who as a Jew, would not have even gone into the house of a Gentile. Right after this, he does go into the house of a Gentile, and the gospel gets spread over to Caesarea right there on the banks of the Mediterranean Sea. And so Paul is saying, listen, it may be that you go to one of these occasions where you're eating, but as the stronger brother, it would be better for you not to eat the meat that you know is clean. God, even though it was sacrificed to an idol, that idol doesn't even exist. It's just in the minds of the person that bought the food. Go ahead and enjoy it, except there's a weaker brother there who absolutely is going to trip over that. And if they see you eat of it, it's going to cause them incredible distress. It would be better then to not offend the brother than it would be to offend the host. Better to offend the host than to offend the brother. So real practical, practical teaching that Paul has given. And then he goes on to say, and just for those of you that are saying, wait a minute, there's no such thing as unclean. Paul says, listen, I'm convinced in the Lord. This isn't my personal opinion, but I'm convinced in the Lord that nothing is unclean of itself. In fact, Jesus over in Matthew 15, he's talking to the, to the Pharisees. The Pharisees come to him and said, look, why don't you talk to your disciples? Because some of your followers are not washing their hands right. And so the food they're eating is, is going in their body. It's defiling them. And in Matthew 15, Jesus says, no, you don't understand. It's not what goes into the man that defiles him. It's what comes out of the man that defiles him. Jesus taught that in Matthew. It's further explained in Acts. And so Paul says, listen, I'm convinced of that. I know that that is true, that nothing is unclean of himself. But if somebody thinks that it's unclean, then to him it's unclean. And to that I ask the question, why would you think that it's unclean? Well, two things, and it's pointed out further into the Scripture. It may be that God has convicted you personally that you shouldn't do this or that, that you shouldn't partake of this particular thing. And so in that case, it's unclean for you. If God said don't do it, then don't do it, even though maybe he hadn't told somebody else that. Or otherwise, it may be that you're still thinking it's unclean because of the way you were brought up, the way you were raised. In the New Testament, if you were a Jew and you were raised as a Jew, you wouldn't eat certain foods. You wouldn't eat shrimp and pork. Uh, if you go with us to the Holy Land in January, a little commercial, if you go with us over there, there's several things you're not going to see on the buffet in the morning. Bacon. <laughs> you also aren't going to see grits. I don't know what they got against grits, but you're not going to see those either. 
When I get back to the airport in America, the first thing I want is some bacon or sausage and some grits. And they're very particular about dietary laws. In the morning, you can have butter with your toast. But in the evening, you're going to have margarine because you can't mix certain meats with dairy. And there's all of these laws that were in the Old Testament, very much valid, very much a part of what God had told them to do. But now he's declared those things clean. So Paul says, I understand that. But listen, if somebody is convicted, if somebody has in their heart, this is something I shouldn't do, then don't judge them because they do it. And here, here really comes the great principle here. He said, if because of your food, and some of your translations may have the word meat there, but it's better translated food. If anything that you would eat would cause your brother hurt, literally would distress them or cause them pain, then don't eat it. He said, in fact, if you're doing it and it's causing them pain, then you're no longer walking according to love. What are you walking according to? You're walking according to selfishness. What you're basically saying is, I have a right to this. Well, what Paul says in another one of his letters, he says, I have that right, but I also have a right to give up my rights. Why? Because I want to see all come to Christ. I don't want to see somebody trip up over something I'm doing that would cause them pain or distress. Paul says, even though it may be a right, the better thing would be to be unselfish and to walk according to love. And then he puts it this way. He said, don't destroy with your food the very person to whom Christ has died. Interesting choice of words because the word he uses for destroy is the word to perish. It's the same word that's used in John 3.16. God's not willing that any should perish. That's why he sent his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Same word that Paul uses here. Listen, we don't want to be destroying or causing somebody to perish just because of something we're partaking of. Allow God to speak to you on this matter and just ask the question, God, there's something I'm doing that would cause somebody else to not be able to follow Christ. And folks, I doubt any of us have any friends that are going to see us out at lunch today and be offended by something we eat. If we have shrimp at the buffet or whatever, if we eat something with too many fat grams, they may get more offended in it now than some of the other stuff. You can take the attitude that it doesn't matter what other people think, but what Paul is saying is it really ought to matter. And then he comes to this next section based on what he just taught, and that is let the kingdom of God be your rule. In other words, let the big picture govern your behavior. Let me continue reading. Therefore, again, therefore, do not let that, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, don't let what is good be spoken of as evil. Evil. In other words, don't let something that God has declared is good, and yet because you're doing it, the world looks at it, and it gives them an opportunity to blaspheme. That's really the word that he uses here. They could blaspheme God because of something that's considered good. And he basically said, listen, the kingdom of God is not about eating meat or drinking wine or any other thing except these three things, righteousness, peace, and joy. And, folks, for some of you, that means a totally different way of thinking. You know, you're going to hear this from a Baptist preacher. Nowhere in Scripture does it say drinking wine is a sin. 
And yet we live in a generation where when people see us partake of that or see you partake of that, it may cause them to partake of it and end up leading to alcoholism, end up leading to child abuse or spouse abuse or whatever. And all Paul is saying is, listen, that's not what the kingdom of God ought to be about. Early on in our marriage, even I made a determination, we've been married 30 years, that we're just going to stay away from it. For one thing, early on in our marriage, that kind of stuff was too expensive. (laughs) The other thing is, there's no way that it's going to help somebody get to Christ. And so, yes, Baptist preacher telling you, nowhere in Scripture does it say, in fact, it does say, you know, don't be overcome by too much wine. So in the, you know, in the privacy of your home, if somewhere where I'm not seeing it or somebody else isn't seeing it, it's one thing. But listen, it's possible that somebody could totally misconstrue and totally be led astray by that. And what Paul is saying is, it's better not to do it. It's just better not to do it. In fact, what's really better is to rely on this, that the righteousness, peace, and joy, that's what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is righteousness, literally equity of character, or considered just in the sight of God. Here's my question. Do you want to be right or do you want to be righteous? For some of you, even that that thought of alcohol is, you know, God hadn't told me I can't do that, and you're right, he hadn't. But do you want to be right or do you want to be righteous? The way that we are righteous and pronounced just in the sight of God is we're not doing something that would cause somebody else to stumble. The kingdom of God is about righteousness. It's about peace. Literally, that tranquil relationship between believers. Again, folks, the world is watching. The world watches the church. And I've heard it said before, listen, those people can't even get along with each other. Why would I want to be a part of that church? Why is it that sometimes the most miserable people, it seems, shows up in church just to start a fight? In fact, if you want to see your church full Two weeks from now, not next Sunday because you'll be here, but two weeks from now. (laughs) Just start a fight. You know, have a business meeting. Threaten to fire the pastor. Or threaten to change the color of the carpet. It's amazing how sometimes churches, peace can go out the window over trivial things. Paul said, that's not, the kingdom of God isn't about that. It's about righteousness. It's about peace. It's about joy in the Holy Spirit. It's about joy. Folks, people ought to see in believers that we can experience joy even in the midst of sorrow. Happiness is something that's external. Joy is internal. Why? Because it's the fruit of the Spirit. So is peace, by the way. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on. So one of the things the world ought to see in us is that there's fruit taking place in our life. Peace and joy. And then he says this, this way you're serving Christ. You're not serving Christ by judging others. You're not serving Christ by setting an example that would lead somebody further away. But you're serving Christ if you're pursuing righteousness and peace and joy. And when you do that, you're acceptable to God. The word means fully agreeable. God looks and says, you're just. I pronounce you just. That's what I want. But even more than that, you're approved by men. Literally accepted after careful examination. Do you know that the world is kind of picking you up at times? Kind of like when you're picking fruit in the grocery store. When I was growing up, there's really only one grocery store near us, and I remember shopping with my mom. And one of the things my mom would do, before she bought grapes, she'd taste one or two of them. Well, you can get arrested for that now. (laughs) You know, 
But that's what she'd do. She'd look at it. My mom taught me when you buy lettuce, you know, pick a several of them up and take the heaviest head. All right? Y'all buy lettuce that way? Don't go to the store and ask for a half a head of lettuce. That's another joke. But go in and, you know, you, you, you pick stuff up and examine it. There, there's people, I see them picking up cantaloupes and smelling it. Yeah, that smells good. I'm going to buy that one. Put it in their buggy. What Paul is saying is, listen, the world's doing that. They're fruit inspectors. They're kind of watching you. If you claim to be a believer, they're watching your life. They're seeing if your life demonstrates righteousness and peace and joy, or does your life demonstrate judgmental attitude and division, or does your church demonstrate that? Because if it does, it's sending a mixed message. So let God's kingdom be your rule. And then finally, let peace be your pursuit. Let me finish the passage. Therefore, excuse me, so then, same word, therefore, we pursue the things, verse 19, which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. So then, here's what Paul says. Let's pursue the things that make for peace and building each other up. So two things we're pursuing. The word pursuing means literally to chase after. It's the word that was used to Paul when he used to pursue Christians. Before Paul became a believer, his name was Saul, and he used to persecute Christians. He pursued them out of Jerusalem to bring them back for trial. Some of those were imprisoned and even put to death. The question is then, why do we have to pursue peace and building people up? Why is that something we've got to put effort into to chase after that? Here's why you have to do it. It doesn't come naturally. These things are not just going to fall in your lap. If you just maintain the status quo and just kind of go through church as usual, business as usual, you're not going to have peace and the building up of people because it's not the natural thing. And so Paul says, rather than judging other people, pursue this. Pursue, first of all, peace. What, what are you pursuing today? Yogi Berra said, if you don't know where you're going, you'll wind up somewhere else. <laughs> the reason you've got to pursue these things is they don't come naturally. And so pursue, first of all, peace. We've talked about peace, but then building up of one another. This is the word that would be used of architecture or structure. Literally, we're to help build each other up, to build them up into a, a structure that's worthy of God and that's usable for God. Build them up rather than tear down the work of God. Here's what God's up to. God is up to building His church for, first and foremost. Jesus said back in, in Matthew, He said, Upon this faith I will build my church. The most significant thing happening on planet earth right now is Jesus is building the church. So Paul said, don't allow your behavior to be a part of tearing something down that Jesus is building up. And the church is made up of people. So God's also in the business of building up people, of growing them in the faith so that they're vital members of the kingdom here on earth. And Paul says, don't be tearing them down, but rather building them up, not for the sake of food. Paul says, look, all things are clean, but they become evil when they cause people an offense. 
Paul said it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or anything which causes a brother to stumble. Well, how far do we go in that? We've already looked at this verse, but back in in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. And so occasionally it may mean that you need to kind of open the door for God to walk around and just ask the question, God, is there anything in my life right now that would cause somebody else pain or cause somebody else to stumble or cause somebody else, if they follow me, to get further away from Christ? Are you leaving footprints behind that if somebody followed you, they would get closer to Christ? And then he ends with somewhat of a confusing statement here toward the end. He said, the faith you have, have as your own Conviction before God. In verse 23, anything that's not of faith is sin. What's Paul talking about? Paul's talking about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ whereby God brings conviction. God brings convincing, persuasion, conviction that something is right or wrong. And I love what he says. He says, listen, you're blessed. He says, happy is the man, literally blessed is the man who's not condemned by something he approves. Folks, the only way you're going to be condemned by approving something is if you approve something that God's already said is disapproved. If God said it's bad, then quit saying it's good. And bottom line is, anything we do by faith is good. Anything that is not by faith is called sin. In other words, are you following the conviction that God has given you? If you are, that's good. If you're not, then you've missed the mark. That's the literal meaning of the word sin. To miss the mark. There's a target we're aiming at. And that target is the righteousness of Christ. It's to be everything that God wants us to be. That's the direction we're going. So live by faith in such a way that you're hearing from God, you're operating on convictions God's given you, you're hitting the target. Anything else falls short of the target. You've missed the mark. It's sin. Let's pray together. Bow your heads. Father, God, I thank you for these folks that have joined here to worship this morning. And God, I pray that you take the truth of your word, and God, not just because the preacher said it, but God, because it is your word, God, I pray that you would convince and convict our hearts, God, to live lives that look like Jesus. God, to live lives that if somebody followed us, they would get closer to Christ. Lord, I'm convinced that will bring unity in the church and really nothing else. Lord, take this back to the churches that we all are part of when we're not here at the chapel. God, make us instruments of peace and righteousness. And God, may even the world outside the church, when they look at us, see believers that are unified and on mission for Christ. God, continue to grow the church and use us as an instrument of growth within it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.